0: Welcome to the Am I Called? Podcast. Am I Called? is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Hi, folks. This is the Am I Called? Podcast, and I'm your host, Dave Harvey. And today we are joined right here in Tallahassee by Dr. Sam Logan. Dr. Logan is the international director of the World Reformed Fellowship, but but actually my my first introduction to Dr. Logan came in his role as president of Westminster Theological Seminary, where he served, I think, for 14 years from 1991 to 2005. So Dr. Logan's ministry story is is quite vast. He's uh, authored books. He's received awards, appointments, educated at Princeton, Emory, and a number of other places it's just not possible to do justice to this man's bio in a brief introduction, but but I do want to say this about Dr. Logan is that he's a man who loves church history, and he's taught extensively and thought extensively about all things Jonathan Edwards, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. One of the things I appreciate particularly about Dr. Logan, though, is that uh, he, he he's a churchman. He is uh, he's an ordained. Minister in the OPC, and he loves the local church and has committed his life to serving the local church. Dr. Logan, it's great to have you with us today.
1: Wonderful privilege to be with you anywhere, Dave, but particularly in Tallahassee.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Well, Dr. Logan, you have trafficked for years in the world of the academy, uh, in the world of seminaries, but also in in the local church as well. So, so talk a little bit about how how should churches use seminaries and in training men and and what dangers should be avoided? Tell me how you think about that.
1: One of the frustrations that I had while working uh, in the seminary world was the difficulty of getting the churches which we sought to serve to make the training of the next generation of church leaders a high priority of that local congregation. There are so many wonderful, wonderful things that a local church can do, all of which would bring honor to Jesus. Um, But to get them to make the training of the next generation of leaders a priority was just almost beyond our ability. We were never able to make significant headway there. So if if there were one thing that I would love to see changed, it would be uh, that the local church, the denominations, whatever, uh, make this training of ministers a high priority.
0: I know you've probably thought about this, but what is it, what are some of the reasons why you think it was difficult for the local church to see that as a necessity, to see that as a way of securing, uh, humanly speaking, the, the future of the church?
1: Let me step back and and do a little bit of history first, Dave. Um, The uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Puritan Colony, was uh, started in 1630. And um, in 1636, before there was even uh, a regular food supply for the colony, uh, the colony decided to start a ministerial training academy um, called Harvard. And I remember reading once uh, in the diaries of John Winthrop, who was the governor of Massachusetts Bay at the time, that this had to be a priority of the entire colony, because otherwise, the next generation of Christians would be left leaderless. Um, I, I think that the um, the failure of many churches to make this a high priority is probably related to the distant payoff of making it a priority. That is, if you invest your time, your energies, even some of your finances in ministerial training, it's likely that you will not experience the benefit of what you've invested for many years, if ever. Uh, It's highly unlikely that the person you actually contribute to training will come back and be the leader of that particular local church. Uh, so it's a matter of where you see a positive feedback from your ministry activities that impacts where you place your priorities in setting church budgets, in assigning uh, tasks to the pastoral staff, and so on.
0: Yeah, it seems like if churches could... Could be investing in men that th- that they knew were going to either come back or they knew where they were going to go, that it would deepen the sense of relational connection, the sense of emotional investment, um, in, and and release the funds perhaps a little bit more.
1: I think you're probably right, um, th- though it's it's fairly rare for. Uh, at least in my experience for someone who emerges from a local church setting uh, to return to, to return at any point to that specific local church setting. Um, some denominations uh, are able to see the results of what they put into training by having those that they train go into churches of that denomination. But even there, um, the, the problem is not so much, in my judgment, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, um, the financial contributions. Uh, of course, seminaries would love to get any financial contributions, um, but the really important thing for churches to contribute is the time of their present leaders into the lives of their future leaders um that's the most important thing and and it's the thing that's most often lacking in many modern american and global theological seminaries
0: now dr logan i'm going to i'm going to kind of pick up there and and switch tracks a little bit by uh by remembering back to a time when i was pastoring a church up in philadelphia and you came. I invited you in, and you came, and you joined our pastoral team. Actually, I think we came to you up at Westminster, but uh, you you joined our team to teach us on the life of Jonathan Edwards. And I'm curious, as we're talking about you know seminaries and and training men, what would you say Edwards added to the church's understanding of training men for ministry?
1: Oh my. Uh, you said we'll go about two or three hours on this one? Uh, <laughs> I'd love to. Well, first of all, uh, the world, the, the the church world, the ecclesiastical world as well as the theological world has changed drastically from Edwards' day. Um, the training that Edwards received and the training that Edwards gave was intensely personal um You may recall that um, a young man named David Brainerd lived in the home of the Edwards family for a number of years before becoming becoming a missionary. And it was that um, daily contact that I think had the greatest impact on uh, uh, David Brainerd. Um, I mentioned to you earlier, as we were chatting that um, unfortunately for the church, Uh, Edwards died um, two and a half months after he became president of what is now known as Princeton College, and we would have loved to see how he might have structured ministerial training at a college like that. Um, The primary training that was received for the latter part of the 17th century and into the uh, 18th century was intensely personal, one-on-one. But by the middle of the uh, 18th century, everyone had become convinced that that kind of training was just not going to be adequate to provide the number of pastors that would be needed in the opening up of the West, which was going on in the mid-part of the um, 18th century. And and so what what eventually happened was um, to meet that need, that is a larger number of uh, pastors, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary was founded in 1812. Mm. And while it, it, it must be Recognized that the need was great, I think many of us are convinced that when you moved the training uh, into a, a single uh, enclosed academic environment, you took away something that was critically important for that training. And I have to say, Dave, that I was um, – you mentioned the time that we were together in Philadelphia – I was at that time extraordinarily impressed with the way in which uh, your church and you particularly were doing that sort of hands-on ministerial training. Let me give one other example, um, maybe somewhat controversial, but um, I had the privilege of sharing any number of accreditation teams at a wide variety of seminaries, and um, The seminary that I thought was doing the best job along the lines of actually mentoring men for ministry was a Roman Catholic school. Hmm. And the reason why they were doing such a good job was that the priests who served on the faculty lived in the dorms with the students. Of course, priests could not be married, so they didn't have families to care for, but uh, when when a, a priest would get up in the morning and go to take a shower, uh, he would be surrounded by the people whom he will be teaching in another hour. That kind of intense personal involvement is, um, is something that is is just very, very difficult to attain when you do most of the training in an academic environment.
0: So mentoring was embedded into the entire system of how they were – they were training men.
1: I, I would even uh, doubt that they thought specifically about that. Um, we, it was interesting the way that that particular credit accreditation visit worked out. Um, the accrediting associations now are pushing very strongly the idea of outcomes assessment. Whatever it is that you say you're going to provide as a seminary, you have to be able to demonstrate that you are measuring your success in providing that. The particular Roman Catholic school that I had in mind did not have a particularly strong uh, report on how they were doing it. It did not appear to me to have been as intentional as uh, it probably should have been. Um, But yes, that interaction on a personal one-to-one basis, uh, day after day after day, in all kinds of environments and settings, was a critically important part of what those men who were being trained to be priests actually became.
0: Sam, is there any sense that, uh, that Edwards had outcomes in view for his training as he's having Brainerd in his home and bringing other men into the church and he's applying himself to training men for ministry. Was there an ideal pa- a profile of an ideal pastor that he was aiming at?
1: I don't know of any place where he addresses the question in those terms. That's really a 20th, 21st century type of question. However, he does provide an answer in what I would regard as his most important work, the uh, Treatise on Religious Affections. Uh, He talks there about the most important sign – that the spirit is at work in someone's life. And once you understand what is the most important sign, then that's what you're going to work for as a preacher when you preach. And that's what you're going to work for as a mentor when you mentor. It's the, um, uh, you know, the book, at least as well as I do, Dave, um, Edward says that the most certain sign that the Holy Spirit has been at work in a person's life is that that person longs to bring honor and glory to Jesus. It's that um, glorious relish for the Savior that identifies uh, better than any other single characteristic the, uh, the saint of God And therefore, when Edwards preached, and I would have to say I suspect, because again, I don't know that he wrote anything about it, I suspect when he interacted with David Brainerd in their home, he was being motivated by what he had written in the Treatise on Religious Affections to uh, stir up holy affection for Jesus. That's that's what's most important. Other things are critically uh, important as well, but the most important thing of all is that there be this holy relish for the honor and glory of God in Christ.
0: Hmm. Oh, I want that too. Um, Sam, this question is just a, a point of curiosity, but given his relationship with with David Brainerd that you're talking about, this morning. Uh, you know, Brainerd is at Yale, and he he has his uh, historic statement that he makes that results in his expulsion. Did did Edwards go to bat for Brainerd and try to get him reinstated to Yale at that time?
1: Good question, Dave. I'm sorry I don't have the answer. Um, why don't you get George Marsden down here, he can <laughs> answer any question. I, George Marsden has written what I think is the most uh, amazing book on Edwards of, of any author. And I remember I was speaking at a conference with him in uh, Wheaton, Illinois once and um, had lunch with him. And the astounding thing was that he said to me that in writing his book, what, 700 pages on Edwards, he had to leave out about two-thirds of all that he had learned about Edwards. Mm. So there's a phenomenal amount and – the yale uh center for Edwards studies is is an extraordinary resource that pastors and would-be pastors should make use of all of its resources are free you can search uh all of the edwards archives they are in the process now of creating an edwards encyclopedia which is supposed to be published next june um and you could probably find the answer to your question in that material somewhere but i don't know of anything that he did to try to get david Brainerd reinstated
0: you know sam the first time that we that we met and i i don't expect you to remember this at all but it was at a uh, it was at a graduation ceremony at westminster theological seminary and we passed in the hallway and you immediately greeted me and You took, in that moment, a very active, real interest in me, our church, uh, my doctoral project. You asked me to send you a copy, and it was evident to me in that moment that you were no mere academic, but but a man with a pastoral heart. So I want to talk a little bit about that. How does—let's say we have a a man listening who— who feels called to ministry. He doesn't feel like he's got a heart for people or a heart to care for the church, but he feels called to ministry He wants to grow in that area. How does a man cultivate a a pastoral heart, a a heart that initiates care and love towards others?
1: I appreciate your introductory comments. I feel totally uh, unworthy of those. But I I would like to try and answer your question, Um, and it comes partly out of what I felt that I did not get and what I continue to feel that the church of which I'm an ordained minister does not often provide. Um, And I guess I would put it this way to the potential ministry training student. Find a mentor. He uh, may be a a full time minister or he may not be. Um, Find someone who will make the time to be with you through all kinds of circumstances. Um, The first such mentor I had was a man named Leroy Oliver. When I first met him, he was um, retired, a retired minister of the OPC. And so he must have been 75 when I was 30. Um, And the Lord gave him to me for only about 15 more years. But um, I remember that when we ran into a particular family issue, um, I just felt it was absolutely natural to call Roy and say, can we have a cup of coffee? I need your help to think through this. So my my major advice would be to every candidate for the ministry, start early to seek a mentor. Don't wait for a mentor to offer himself to you. Um, you may be turned down. Um, in my years on the ministerial training subcommittee of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we, we learned that um, it was hard to get the very best pastors to serve as mentors because they were too busy. So you, you, you may run into uh, some frustrations in seeking a mentor. Don't give up. I believe that the most important thing you can do is um, be under the spiritual care of a more mature Christian individual. Usually that'll be a minister, but not always. And in my case, it was a retired minister. Uh, So I I just think that 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 personal hands-on touch um, is so critically important because it's going to teach you what you need to be to others in the future, whether you have a church of five thousand or a church of fifty,
0: and part of the way that you've wanted to mentor men has been in the area of uh, of preaching, and I think I think specifically of the the work that you co-edited, or you you were the editor of the the preacher and preaching. You know, I think a book that's helped a lot of pastors to become. Preachers, and, and there were other contributors in that book like Packer and James Boyce and R.C. Sproul. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious, Sam, you know, tell us about why that book materialized. In other words, what, what was missing that you were seeing in, in the preaching at that time that you wanted to address? Because this was the 80s, correct? That book was... yes. Okay, yes. so yeah, talk about what was going on back then.
1: Well, first of all, I have to say that it wasn't my idea. Um, two Westminster students and one other Westminster faculty member came into my office one day and said, let's do a book on preaching. Um, and, uh, I, I give them the credit for the idea. Um, I ended up serving as editor, um, but I think that the idea was theirs. Let me get at your question a slightly different way from the way in which you asked it, um, as a result of my studies of Edwards, when Ed Clowney uh, asked me to begin teaching some preaching courses at, um, at Westminster, um, I, I tried to figure out what was the best way to try to apply to the preaching of men who would be preaching for years after I was long dead and gone what was the most important thing I could try to uh, give to them from Edwards? And I came up with um, something that, again, is taken out of the religious affections. um, And it also is related to what we were talking about earlier in terms of outcomes assessment. I urged my homiletics students not to go into the pulpit until they were sure in their own hearts and minds what exactly it was that they wanted to be happening in the hearts and minds of their congregation five minutes after the service ends. Hmm. Now, just because you have a good idea what you want to have happening doesn't mean that it will. But it's almost guaranteed that if you can't answer that question, nothing will be happening five mm, minutes after the service is over.
0: That's a great way to conceptualize what you're aiming for. And at. Uh, the,
1: the the thing is that in my judgment, again from Edwards, you, you don't say you want um, your congregation to understand the theology of Genesis 1 to 3. I personally think that's extremely important to do. But um, I, I think it's even more important to say something like, I want my congregation at 1205 to have a deepening sense of what it means to serve God as my creator. I am his creature. He is my creator. Now, what does that mean for how I worship, for how I live my life, for how I relate to my wife and to my children or whoever, So, um, I, I don't think you can get to the right biblical answer to the question without dealing with the theology of Genesis 1-3. to But I think that, particularly in my own tradition, it, it often is the case that we stop with the theology. And Edwards urged that we not do so. Hmm. How does the theology shape your relish for Jesus in this specific passage. And um, everything that you do, from the hymns you choose to the scripture reading to the way in which the whole service is conducted is aimed toward that end, what you want to have happening in the hearts of your congregation five minutes after the service is over.
0: You travel quite a bit um, Sam, and your work with the World Reformed Fellowship, both nationally and, and internationally. And I, I guess I'm curious, um, are, there, are there common weaknesses that you discern in preaching today or in young preachers today that as you have opportunity to interact over preaching with men that you're addressing or that you're seeing
1: Oh, Dave, that, that really is such a, a broad question. Um, uh, we uh, were part of a major consultation on global theological education in Sao Paulo, Brazil in June. And um, it was remarkable to see how diverse both the methods of theological education and the problems inherent in theological education were in the 65 different countries that were represented there. Um, I'm sorry to keep going back to Edwards, but I'm going to again. Um, Edwards um, is reacting in the Treatise on Religious Affections to two errors in the church. And my answer to your question is that these two errors are the ones that continue to plague us wherever you are in the world. Now, which one it is depends on where you are in the world. Um, The the one is um, an overemphasis upon the intellectualization of the faith. That is, we we teach only uh, heavy-duty theology, and that's the end goal for us. The other um, inclination is to make everything an emotive kind of experience that has no solid rooting in theology. Um, And Edwards, at the beginning of the Religious Affections, talks about the difference between uh, having minds that know the truth or having emotions that are raised to the highest level, the differences between those two things and Religious Affections where you, you really find your foundation in sound theology, but you're never satisfied just with that theology. Edwards um, made the comment once that the most theologically orthodox person in the universe was Satan. He knows the truth about God. He knows the truth about Jesus. He was there on the uh, Mount of Temptation, but he's not a Christian. Why not? Well, there's, there's something he has not done. He has not come to relish the beauty of Jesus. And so whether I'm speaking with my brothers in, in um, a majority world context where the worship services are sheer emotion or whether I'm worshiping with my brothers in a uh, Western situation where heavy-duty theology is um, the, the desired outcome, I, I think th- that the errors are – are similar in that they they fail to take account of the total picture that is presented for us throughout all of Scripture and particularly in the Gospels when you when you see and and, and understand who Jesus is.
0: Now you, um, in order to make an investment into preachers, you helped to write. You co-edited. And I think contributed to a book called "Sermons that Shaped America," which is a, you know, it's a fascinating compilation of, of different sermons. Um, why don't you just, Sam, why don't you pick one of them and talk about the impact that you think it made?
1: Oh my goodness, pick one. Um, the um, first one that is in the volume is a sermon by John Winthrop, the man whom I mentioned earlier. Um, He was preaching it, and by the way, he was not a minister. He was not theologically trained, but he was the person in charge of the establishment of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And so on the boat on the way over from um, uh, England, uh, he did preach at at one of the worship services on the ship. The sermon is entitled A Model of Christian charity, and um, what he sets forth there, and I say this in the introduction to to that sermon in the book, is a vision for what a community ought to be. Um, He focuses it on on Jesus and what he did, and that's why we do what we do. Um, But the community that we're going to set up in Boston he was saying, needs to be, more than anything else, a model of Christian charity. That is a a way of treating one another that brings honor to Jesus. Um, I think that had a great impact on the first 50, 75 years of the colony's experience and probably a, a longer impact in terms of what, um, what America has become. Of course, uh, problems arose very quickly in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It wasn't a perfect community by any means. It was, uh, well, you know, it was made up of sinners. And uh, so some of that sin uh, popped out. Pretty quickly, but I do believe that the um, goal that uh, Winthrop set for the colony is a goal that um, we could learn from today—a model of Christian charity—as we deal with immigration reform, as we deal with budget matters, as we deal with um, Muslims. Um, we, We. we need in all of these cases to be sure that we're doing all that we are doing because we think that that, that what we are doing is the best way to bring honor to the name of Jesus
0: well sam this has been uh, this has been an immensely interesting and and helpful interview just as i expected and just as i hoped thank you very much for joining us today
1: thank you dave um and If I come back, can you try to arrange the temperatures to be a little higher?
0: They they typically are. I cannot explain this phenomenon today. (laughs) Thank
1: you, though, very much.
0: Well, that's it for today, folks. Uh, Again, this is is Dave Harvey, and this has been the Am I Called podcast. And if you're interested in other information on calling or ministry and are interested in getting a hold of free stuff to help you with that, please visit amicalled.com. See you. Thank you for listening to the MI Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit micalled.com.